Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our webinar on the politics of care. I'm Darby Saxby. I'm an associate professor of psychology at USC and the current director of USC's Center for the Changing Family. So this event is a collaboration between USC's Center for the Political Future and our Center for the Changing Family. The Center for the Political Future was founded in 2018. It seeks to understand and bridge the political divide through public conversations, a fellows program, uh, polling, and other research-based initiatives. Our Center for the Changing Family was founded in 2020, and it acts as an interdisciplinary hub for family studies research and practice across USC's campus, supporting research training and public communication related to the family. So for more information, please check our websites or visit us on Twitter. And we have a terrific panel here today. I'm going to start off by introducing our moderator, Dr. Jennifer Hook, who will introduce the rest of the panel. Dr. Hook is a professor of sociology here at USC and an internationally recognized scholar who studies how the policy environment shapes parents' employment and household labor participation. She received her PhD from the University of Washington, and her book, Gendered Tradeoffs, Family, Social Policy, and Economic Inequality in 21 Countries, takes a comparative look at work-family dynamics across different national contexts. So without further ado, here is Dr. Hook. Thank you, Darby. I'm honored to be moderating this panel today. We have a stellar lineup, so I'm not going to waste any time getting to these introductions. First, we have Ms. Brentia Berry, who is political director at PLUS, Paid Leave for the United States, the national campaign to win paid family and medical leave by 2020. She's a political strategist and public policy expert. She served as the National Deputy Director of Public Engagement for Senator Elizabeth Warren's 2020 presidential campaign. And prior to that, as Chief of Staff for the City of San Antonio City Council. She received her bachelor's degree in political science from Louisiana State and her master's degree at the University of Texas LBJ School of Public Affairs. Um, we're also delighted to be joined today by Congressman Jimmy Gomez, who was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 2017 to represent California's 34th district, which includes downtown L.A., he began public service as a labor organizer and became one of the youngest members of the California State Assembly. While serving in the State Assembly, he, he authored and passed California's Paid Family Leave Act. Uh, he attended community college, graduated from UCLA, and later earned a master's in public policy from Harvard University's JFK School of Government. And he is a co-sponsor of the Family Act. Uh, last but not least, we have Ms. Vicki Shabo, who is a senior fellow of paid leave policy and strategy at New America's Better Life Lab. Prior to joining New America, she led the National Partnership for Women and Families Workplace Policy Initiatives, spearheading efforts to secure federal executive actions on paid sick days, equal pay, and sex discrimination. She serves on a number of advisory boards on leave issues, including the Paid Leave for All campaign. She graduated from Pomona College, earned a master's in political science from the University of Michigan, and a JD from the University of North Carolina School of Law. So I want to get right to questions, but a tiny bit of background before we launch in. 
As many of you are probably aware, the U.S. has no federally mandated paid leave. Since 1993, we've had the FMLA, which provides 12 weeks of unpaid job-protected leave for birth, adoption, as well as to tend to one's own medical care or that of an immediate family member. But due to eligibility requirements, four in 10 workers aren't even eligible for unpaid leave. A few states, including California, have stepped in to provide paid leave, as have some employers, but most Americans have no access to paid leave for birth, adoption, or serious illness. This has temporarily changed with the Families First Coronavirus Response Act last March, but this is yet to become a permanent policy change. I'd like to start off by asking one of our panelists to help us with what's the state of national paid family leave today? Can someone explain the key features of the Family and Medical Insurance Leave Act or the Family Act and how it addresses sort of current limitations? It's Vicki, and I'm happy to jump in unless the congressman wants to go first. I feel like he has privilege here. <laughs> All right. So the state of paid leave today is that just 20% of workers have access to paid family leave through their employers. Um, that's care time to, paid time to care for a new child or a seriously ill loved one. Only about 40% have access to um, personal medical leave through an employer's temporary disability plan. This means that most workers don't have paid family or medical leave for a serious personal issue to care for a loved one, to care for a new child. Um, certainly during COVID, a lot of people did not have paid leave before Congress acted to provide care uh, to a child who was out of school. Um, there are states that have passed laws, like the one that Congressman Gomez championed as a member of the California state legislature. Um, so there are social insurance programs set up to provide paid family and medical leave uh, that are in effect in six states plus D.C. now. And there are three more that will be coming online, and I'm happy to talk more about those. Um, and at the federal level, momentum has been building behind something called the Family and Medical Insurance Leave Act, which would guarantee 12 weeks of paid leave to care for a new child through birth, adoption, or foster placement, to care for a seriously ill or injured loved one, to deal with your own serious health issue, or to care for a military service member who's been injured, or to deal with the effects of the service member's deployment. It would be structured as the states are, as a, as a social insurance program, which means Employers and employees would each provide small mandatory contributions to a public fund, and that is how employees would be um, paid or workers would be paid when they need to take time off. It would cover traditional employees, um, part-time employees, um, and self-employed workers who would pay in just as they do to Social Security, um, and, uh, and workers would get at least two-thirds of their wages replaced. And there's some work being done looking at state programs to improve those benefits even more to make sure that they're equitable. Uh, for low-income workers. Um, in addition, workers can't be retaliated against when they take leave. Um, and that's that's key. There are features that could be enhanced even more, including full job protection, which we know are, is a very important feature in state programs. But that's those are the basic outlines. Basically, everybody should have access to paid family medical leave, no matter where they live, who they're caring for, or what job they have. And that's what the Family Act would do. Um, thank you. How has COVID shifted the perception and urgency of implementing a national paid leave program. Hi, thank you for having me first. And, and you did a great job going over the, the state of um, leave in this country. But I just wanna kind of also stress that if you really think about it, there wasn't really a discussion of paid family leave during the, the 2000s, right? There was, but it, it was so in its infancy. 
it wasn't until 2016 where um, Hillary Clinton made it a big uh, push on her during her campaign, and that's where you saw the the drumbeat. Um, and in 2016, California just uh, two years before had just uh, celebrated its 10-year implementation of of paid family leave, and other states have now uh, moved along, and and now there's that discussion. But it was really was the um, so we're, I want to just say we're when people are not aware of a program, they don't know what they're missing out on. They know that they want to go and bond with the child or take care of a sick family member, but they have no idea that there are, are some states that are providing it. I think that's what this advocacy that all the groups are doing have kind of done is raise this as a, a higher and higher issue, which makes it more likely that we're going to be able to pass something, right? When you start hearing Republicans, even uh, during the Trump administration, talking about paid family leave, um, they had different ideas. They wanted to take money from different uh, sources, but at least they're having that conversation. So I think we're we're moving forward on on that debate. Um, there are um, other issues when it comes to it um, because of the national pandemic. All of a sudden, there was more of a interest of how do you take care of a sick family member or a newborn child, right? But during like so, it's all of a sudden that the pandemic made the need even greater. You know, um, there was programs like state disability insurance programs that if you got sick, um, usually from work, um, I mean, you got sick, you could take time off and um, you can take time off and take care of yourself. But there was nothing that said, okay, if a family member gets sick, what is what are you supposed to do? So I think that we're moving in the right direction. And um, as the crisis worsened, you know, we passed the, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which included um, the first federal legislation providing paid family leave. 140 Republicans voted to pass it, which was a big deal, and eight Republicans in the Senate, but they weren't necessarily voting for paid family, family leave. Um, I think that they can claim it now, but it's not something that, that's not their, I don't think, their, their main reason why they voted for it. So uh, I think the pandemic has just highlighted just a lot of what we've seen, the fact that there's the social safety net is not as robust as people think it is, that a, a pandemic has hollowed out, um, you know, when it comes to the impact of, on cities and, and workers, but especially women. That's so, I think that we're, we're moving in, in the right direction, but uh, the pandemic has really just highlighted the disparity that already people knew existed, right? Especially with people with good paying jobs. And I, I study mainly the California model, and I can tell you that um, it was not as equitable as it needed to be. Anything that doesn't recognize that people at a lower income levels save less, have less in the savings account. And if they don't recognize that, then they can't develop programs, pay family leave programs that say, okay, these folks need more help, right, to make it truly equitable. So, so far, I think we have to build on it. Right now, because of the pandemic, there is a, a space. I'm going to try to figure that out. It's sort of related, the child, tax, uh, the child tax credit, huge idea. It's revolutionary in some of the, the ways it's being implemented. So we're moving, we're moving in the right direction, but we're still not quite there. And I, and I hope the pandemic highlighted a main fact, and I've been talking about this a lot, that our social safety net has, safety net has a bunch of holes uh, because you have um, independent contractors more than ever before, 1099 workers that are outside of that, you know, that employer-employee relationship where everything is taken out, right? State disability, um, which paid family leave is built on, unemployment, 
keep going over and they have nothing to, to fall onto. And I think that there is this now discussion of like, what will be that new social compact, right? That builds off the, the New Deal, the Great Society, some of the advancements that we've done. And I think paid family leave is going to be a big part of it. So um, moving forward, but we, we still have a lot to do, a lot to do. Thank you, Congressman. That segues very nice to our next question. Public opinion polling shows wide bipartisan support for paid leave, upwards of 80 to 90%, depending on which survey you look at. So what are the roadblocks to implementation? Why don't we have this yet? And as a political strategist, I'm wondering if uh, Ms. Berry can start us out with this question. Yes, so um, I am, and I'll just expound on what Congressman Gomez said, we are taking steps in the right direction, but I think it's truly ha- it truly has to become a priority, and we have to continue to demonstrate that it's a priority for voters and that there is political saliency behind paid leave. And so, you know, looking at the pandemic and the impacts that the pandemic has had has exas- exacerbated uh, what we what we have seen in terms of the impacts on low-wage workers, uh, people of color, women of color. And um, I think often when, uh, you know, we are thinking about what are priorities and voters, we're not necessarily thinking about that, those constituencies as the people that are electing, um, our elected officials. But we saw what happened in this last election. And I think that there's so much opportunity for us to continue to build on that momentum of, yes, like Arizona was flipped blue, right? Georgia was flipped blue. And so those are those constituencies that that delivered the election for um, the current administration and the Senate, which is has been huge in helping us to get things done. is our, our constituencies that we have to start making sure that we're prioritizing. And I'm grateful for Congress people like um, Congressman Gomez that are, that have been doing that, that did that for the state of California, but um, we have to take it one step further now. And we have an opportunity. We, we, we took a step forward with the FFCRA or two steps forward with the FFCRA. And then unfortunately that expired. Um, because the political will wasn't there. And now we're taking a step, we took a couple steps back and now we're taking a step forward with the rescue package. Um, but this next phase of, of uh, investments that the administration is going to do with the recovery package, we have to make sure that we are um, demonstrating that paid leave is a movement and that there are voters and people that are going to determine what's happening in 2022 and 2024 moving forward that will be thinking about what you did, what uh, Congress members did in, uh, in this time. So I think we just have to make clear that, that this is a movement and that there is political saliency and that um, now is the time to get paid leave done and we have to be bold. And also I think it's very important for us to make sure that we're thinking of it 
in terms of the care economy and the larger care infrastructure. Um, as so many people are seeing our system, our care system fail us right now. So I think that's part of it, but I, I, I'm also interested to hear from Vicki and um, the Congressman. Thank you, Ms. Barry. Yes, I would be really interested to hear any other um, thoughts on this as well, because I think comparing ourselves to other countries, the U.S. is so weird, right? We're the only rich country that doesn't have paid leave. And sort of how, how do we go about explaining why this hasn't happened yet? Um, what, what sort of remains to, be, remains to be done? So if anyone else has thoughts they'd like to share, I would love to hear them. Yeah, I'll jump in um, to sort of tie together a few different threads that have come up in your questions and in what, um, what Brencia and the congressman have said, which are, are a couple of things. One, um, we saw from the FFCRA, the emergency paid leave that was in place, um, that uh, 400 COVID infections per day per state that didn't have pre-existing paid sick days laws um, were prevented. So this was a public health policy. Um, the child care leave that was in place for nine months last year was an economic support policy and a workforce protection policy. These are the values that carry forward um, in paid leave. And I think, you know, if there's anything that this pandemic has shown, it's the importance of being able to provide care for yourself or for a loved one or to protect your health or the public's health um, without losing your job or risking income. To the disparities point, the very people who were on the front lines of this pandemic were also those that didn't have access to paid leave and suffered. And as a result, we've seen more than 5 million women um, leave the workforce during this period of time. And so as we think about how we build back better, how we build back in a way that is equitable and inclusive, brings the women in particular who left um, back to work, ensures that people are able to care for the growing population of older folks, and that we're able to protect not just the people who had um, serious health issues before, but the new crop of people who now have a pre-existing serious health condition as a result of COVID, we cannot let this moment pass without providing paid leave. And I think, you know, to Brencia's point about building a movement, there is a newfound public understanding that has added, we've always had broad public support. As you said, that support has long crossed party lines, 75% of Republicans, 66% of Republicans, typically 75% of independents, 80 to 90% of Democrats supporting paid leave, usually between half and two thirds support it strongly. That was true before the pandemic. We've seen uh, record low levels of opposition, record high levels of support for permanent paid leave now um, across the country, including in battleground districts and states. People have a new expectation about what it is that should be in place for them. So, uh, safety net or a backstop or a baseline that should be in place for them. And in some ways, as we think about care infrastructure, to me, paid leave is really the glue that holds holds policy, the sort of policy conversation together. So on the one hand, we have childcare, which you know, Congress has made now historic investments in childcare as a result of this rescue plan. Hopefully those will become permanent. We need more investments in home and community-based care. So we're dealing with kind of the care situations of children and older disabled and disabled adults. Um, but paid leave is the glue that literally touches or has the potential to touch every single working person and their family members um, at the times when they need it most. It touches people across, across race, but obviously disproportionately important for low-wage workers, workers of color, and women who have higher rates of caregiving responsibilities, but lower rates of access to paid leave. 
but every person should be able to see themselves in a paid leave policy. And so if you're a political leader, regardless of what party you are, that's going to be a plus for you. Also, as politicians and, and President Biden in particular are talking about unity policies, paid leave should be a unity policy for the polling that I just talked about and that you referenced, Professor Hook. And because it is literally something that is founded on the idea that you should be able to be there for yourselves and your loved ones. It's a values policy as well as an economic policy and a workforce policy. Um, And we are, as you said, one of the only countries in the world that doesn't have any paid leave. And with respect to the pandemic, that actually set us behind. Um, There's some great research from UCLA, which I know USC, UCLA, as a California girl, I know that's contentious, but uh, there's a center at UCLA that's done some great work on the international comparisons that I think fit really importantly into this conversation about how we want to move forward as a global economic superpower moving forward too. Great points. And um, I was just on a a Ways and Means call with uh, Secretary Janet Yellen, and she said that um, participation by women in the workforce, it's it's the lowest point since 1985. So, um, and if you, you Remember the the 80s, it was not very, equity is bad now and being uh, treated equally was as bad now. It was even way worse in the the 80s. So um, that's how far we've fallen. And and you always hear the same kind of attacks, right? That's too much of a burden on small businesses, too much of a burden on corporations, it's too much. But we all know, if you've studied it, that participation actually goes up, the workers are more effective, um, it, it is productivity is higher, right? So it's not, it's a question that we always have to beat back these, these comments and these criticism because they're just not based in fact. And we also have to make the public understand how it's going to impact their lives, right? And that's something that we always have to um, go back to that, you know, this is part of a, a sales job um, on how we, we talk about it, but it, it does have an ability to really change the lives of, of people who are involved in, um, in caregiving and bonding with their children. And, and if uh, I'll make an argument as well is that studies have showed, even in California, that the participation of men taking paid family leave to bond with a newborn child increased over time as more of them became aware of it, uh, and it helps change the perception of what a man's role should be in bonding with their child. That, Caregiving isn't just a, 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 a woman's responsibility or raising the kids. And that is, I think, better. We makes our, our society and our, and our country better off. So it, the benefits are immense, um, but we definitely have to keep that, that drum beat up. Um, and an administration can make a big difference. You know, um, when uh, Obama was in the White House, the labor secretary was going state by state pushing paid family leave. And as each state comes online, then the pressure to do something nationally increases. So strategy is also um, we have a control of the federal government, 50 votes in the Senate. Um, not all Democrats are created equal, uh, but I appreciate that they are still, uh, you know, still there, um, that we have the majority. But it, um, we need to figure out how we play the inside-outside game to restart the momentum that we had before the pandemic. Great, thank you. And this has been brought up by, I think, all three of our panelists have had hints of this in their answer, but we know there are strong disparities in access to paid leave by income, by race, ethnicity, 
where the most advantaged workers are most likely to have access. So I would love to hear you just reflect a little bit about how paid leave is an equity issue. I could talk about this all, all day, but I'll allow somebody else to, to go first. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you, Congressman Gomez. It, it's a huge equity issue. Um, we have seen uh, research that, that demonstrates that, you know, even the, the racial wealth gap, access to job benefits accounted for 20% of the widening of the racial wealth gap. So, uh, you know, I really love what Vicki said about Paidley being the glue that holds it all together. And I think that's very true when it comes to the way that we're looking at equity and um, care. And it is like inclusive national paid leave program and policies would only improve access for the people, the very people um, we're seeing this she session as, as um, Vicki and the Congressman mentioned, and it is really, really impacting black and brown women um, and people of color. And so those are the people that we have seen the biggest loss from the workforce over these past couple of months. And the way that we get people back to work and start combating these inequities is by uh, passing national comprehensive paid leave policies. And I'll also say that Black women and um, Latino women are the primary breadwinners in a lot of their households. And so them leaving the workforce is just creating even further inequities on top of what was already happening when we're looking at the racial wealth gap and um, pay inequities and access to care and resources and benefits that people need to be able to survive right now. So, I mean, it's just, it is point blank an equity issue. And I think that sometimes it's not been perceived that way because we talk about it as like maternity care. And, and that's, that is part of uh, why Congressman Gomez's point is so important that uh, it's not a, it's not a women's issue and it's not just uh, like getting, making sure that everybody has access to paid leave is only going to improve and decrease barriers for the people that are most impacted because the burden is not solely on um, them to try to work, take care of their families, their loved ones, or even themselves and have to choose between that or their livelihoods. So it's just, it is very, very uh, important for us to get this done. Can I just add one thing to sort of put, I mean, I think a point on this, which is um, I looked at, it's not disaggregated by race, unfortunately, though, you know, for all the reasons that Brencia and the congressman mentioned, low job quality, you know, lower job quality, higher rates of, of care needs, lower wages, making it less wealth, making it harder to take an unpaid leave. That makes it an equity issue. But just to explain why we know that we need public policy in this area and can't rely on the public and the private sector to do the right thing. Um, a couple of just points that really stick with me. One is um, I looked at access to paid leave provided by employers from 2010 to 2020 and found that there was a 10 percentage point jump from 10% to 20% of workers covered by paid family leave over that period of time. So that's, you know, a good increase, but you're still talking about 80% of workers that don't have access to paid leave. Among the lowest paid workers and the workers in um, the food service industry, 
the increase in access over a 10-year period of time was just two to three percentage points from something like 2% to 4%. So we, we cannot leave this to the private sector. The workers in those jobs are disproportionately women and people of color who are paid low wages and often have children and others that they're supporting. We can't leave this to the private sector. There are some companies that have done great work. There are some companies that are terrific allies um, holding up both their own data in terms of retention and productivity and why it's valuable to them. There are some that have endorsed the Family Act, companies like Levi Strauss and Patagonia and Adobe and Blue Bottle Coffee and a number of small businesses across the country. Um, But the private sector isn't going to do this on their own. They didn't do it before the pandemic. During the pandemic, um, a lot of companies did not increase their their leave offerings voluntarily. And um, so this is just it's a must have. And it is a a public investment, public policy issue um, that is long overdue to be addressed. And this is the time, um, you know, to the congressman's point. And uh, if not now, when? If we can't pass paid leave as a result of a pandemic, what are we, what kind of country are we? What are we waiting for? And just to add on to what Nikki and Bernicia have um, said is, so it's equity as in how does it help workers stay attached to their job, make it through the tough times and then go back, right? It's actually studies have shown that. It helps with that. But there's also an equity issue within an equity issue. So how you structure these paid family leave programs can have a big impact on who actually uses it. Um, That's why I encourage anybody who's done a paid family leave, any state, that they don't wait 10 years to review it, but they wait, they maybe do it after two years. And then they adapt their policy. So when I started looking at it, and I was, I started looking at it and I, and what my idea came from is that when I found out it was six weeks in California at 55% of your wage, well, I think back to my parents, that they worked thir- three to four jobs a week to make ends meet on 100% of their salary. So all of a sudden, they're paying into a state disability insurance program for paid family leave and disability, but they're only going to get 55% of their wage. Well, if they can't, they're barely making it on, on 100% of their wage, what makes anybody think they're going to take time off at 55%, right? So how it's structured can either um, help with the equity issue or make it worse. And um, and what the study showed is that people that were using it the most were people in California were people who are making 80,000 or more a year. So structure makes a big difference. So a wage replacement that gets working class people, especially under like 45, $50,000 a year, almost 100% of their, of their take home salary, that will help them be able to take it off. The other thing is um, job protection. Most of these folks work for smaller employers, right? They're, they're left out. In California, they lowered the number. So I took care of the wage replacement where I upped it. Hannah Beth Jackson uh, took care of the job protection where they lowered it for more, uh, for more workers, basically employers, I think under 25, up at uh, 25 and, and over. And then, um, knowledge. We ended up uh, like just knowing about the program, how to apply for it, how to use it. So, and who often is left behind? It's often people that are working these lower wage jobs, minimum wage jobs, working for service sector. Um, they're the ones that are being left behind. And those are the ones who are, we're trying to target to actually use this program in the first place because the benefits for their families is tremendous, right? Health-wise, economic, um, anxiety and stress, you name it. Um, so 
we have to think about it in, in multiple lenses, um, both, you know, let's ex do a federal program, but make sure that it's actually targeted in an equitable way, right? Um, and that's something that I've been pushing for a long time, but um, Chairman Richie Neal of Ways and Means just assigned me to be a co-chair of new racial and economic uh, equity working group with Terry Sewell and um, uh, Steve Horsford to look at all these little programs that are, should be reducing and helping work, reducing the inequity that we see, but it's, they're not quite there. So um, that's something that I've been gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna go through the Family Act line by line and say, okay, is there things that we can improve on it? But every state, California, the, one of the, the leader of this issue should always be assessing what else can we do to remove those barriers that prevent participation and utilization of, of a paid family program that should be helping um, uh, the people at the lowest rungs of the economic ladder. Okay, I was passionate about the equity issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks so much to all three of you for responding to that. I mean, we could have um, an entire day symposium on paid leave and equity issues, but unfortunately with our 45 minutes, I'm gonna keep moving on um, but I think this also ties into this next question as well, is that similar to the FMLA, the Family Act is broadly inclusive to caregiving and medical issues across the life course, right? Encompassing parental, medical, caregiving leave. So how has this been important to forming a successful coalition, but at the same time, has it presented any limitations into sort of crafting policy? So in terms of of the coalition building, the breadth of the policy is actually a tremendous strength. Um, you have, it is, it's, when I was at the National Partnership for Women and Families, um, the National Partnership convenes the National Work and Family Coalition, which is a coalition of about 300 groups. And, you know, at that table, it was, it is, everybody from, you know, child, early childhood education and child development groups, like zero to three, to the National Alliance for Caregiving, the National Military Families Association, to um, us against Alzheimer's, to racial uh, racial justice and civil rights groups, to the human rights campaign. So the comprehensiveness of the bill actually provides a way for, and the comprehensiveness of the caregiving that's available, provides a way for different people to see entry points into the conversation. Um, so I think it's a tremendous strength. Where we have uh, started to see challenges is mostly along partisan lines where um, Congressman Gomez referenced this at the beginning, there are a few Republicans who have started to talk about this issue, um, President Trump and the, the former guy, um, and his daughter talked a lot about this issue, um, Senator Cassidy of Louisiana, um, Mike Lee and Mitt Romney of Utah, Joni Ernst of Iowa, um, have, have talked a lot about paid leave, but when they talk about it, they're only talking about paid leave to care for new children. Um, and the proposals that they've come up with wouldn't actually make new investments. They would just require um, a redistribution of resources away from the very same people who need them now. Um, and, and, you know, that ignores the fact that um, in the period of time that you need to care for a new child is very, very important, obviously, for all sorts of reasons. But it ignores the fact that children live in families for many, many years. And when a parent... Um, a parent gets sick or a parent needs to care for a grandparent or a parent needs to care for another parent or a parent needs to care for a child who is, is seriously ill, that family still needs income or they're going to face 
all sorts of consequences, whether it's the inability to pay for groceries and food or to pay rent or utilities um, or any other any other thing that you might need in order to keep your job and keep your income. Um, Paid parental leave for new children alone is completely insufficient to the challenge that lies ahead. Um, And so that is why the comprehensiveness is so important. It's true that it makes a policy more expensive, but I think any conversation about expense and and what a a policy might cost um, is really not the right question to be asking. The question is that we should be asking is what is it costing us to do nothing? And the answer to that is, you know, $22 billion a year in lost income for families. It's, um, you know, quarter million dollars or more in lost wages for adults who have to leave the workforce to care for an aging parent. Um, it's people with medical bills that pile up because they can't take time. And so we're already losing, you know, untold billions of dollars. And so the conversation about what paid leave costs is, is a red herring to me. And it's really about how much are we, would we save and how much better would we be um, if we had a, a national paid leave policy. Let me add on something for, for Vicki. Uh, you're absolutely right. I, I, I once said, uh, uh, I always noticed that Republicans tend to care about the bookends of a person's life, their, their birth and their death, but in between you're on your own. Um, and that's where a lot of the living takes place, right? That's where, where um, in my situation, when I was a kid, I always tell the story, and I think that's why I was also drawn to this issue, is when I was about seven years old, I ended up getting um, sick with pneumonia and I spent a week in the hospital. But because of the missed work shifts, because my parents didn't want me to be um, in the hospital alone, somebody was always there. And the extra hospital bills, this was back in the, in the 80s, um, it almost bankrupted my family. And the reason why I know that, even at a young age, is because my, my siblings told me we weren't getting presents for Christmas that year because of the hospital bill that we got from uh, the summer before. So um, it's not just about the bookends of a person's life. It's about how families are struggling throughout a child's life or, or their parent's life. It's about helping them in those, in those tough moments. And the broader it is, the better. I think that if you narrow it too much, then you lose a lot of the support and goodwill and, and energy that we've built over the years that, that grassroots groups and uh, nonprofits and think tanks have built over the years on this issue. So keeping it broad, I think, is, is definitely the, the right direction. I agree completely. And I think, as has been mentioned, the Family Act is a step in the right direction. Um, we, the Paley for the U.S. did a, um, a report with Georgetown um, a few years ago. And, I mean, exactly what you all have mentioned, the OECD's average for uh, what is quality paid leave is very different than what we currently have. And so, yes, we like our belief is 12 weeks is is not necessarily enough, but it is a huge step in the right direction. And I also want to bring back, you know, what um, the congressman mentioned about the type of policy, like making sure that it's comprehensive and inclusive and meaningful and secure. Um, and that being key for making sure that um, we are taking steps in the right direction in a way that will work for everyone, um, not just like middle class people who are well aware of some of these policies and can have the resources to 
to, to know about them, but there needs to be an effort. And we saw this with FFCRA, how underutilized it was because people didn't necessarily know um, how to access it or that they could even take paid leave when the one time that we had paid leave policies. So I think it's just really, really important that um, we take this step in the right direction and then we make sure that we are uh, continuing to build and on the, the Family Act and uh, hopefully whatever we get through this recovery uh, package, I'm claiming that now in terms of paid leave, um, that we are continuing to build on it in a way that is equitable and accessible for the people most impacted. Thank you. So in Ms. Berry's response, uh, she foreshadowed my next question, but I would love to hear more about this, that, you know, the Family Act would be a huge advance for American families. Um, But when we start thinking about certain groups like new mothers, right, um, 12 weeks of paid leave is still way behind the OECD average, which is about a year of paid leave. So I'm wondering about whether you all see the Family Act as an endpoint or a step to something larger and sort of what what you might think of as your ideal and what some of the trade-offs that you think about as you're sort of thinking about what what would be the best sort of package for American families? I think that the Family Act, if the Family Act passed with some of the enhancements that were discussed um, in a ways and means hearing that happened just before the pandemic, it would be a tremendous, important and historic step that has been long overdue for more than 28 years now. So I would start there and I would celebrate it. And I would, um, of course, you know, as the congressman said, look to evaluate how it's working and and build, continue to build momentum and keep the coalition going um, to make tweaks over time. Um, I think what I find really challenging about the sort of like what policy is best question is that it really depends on what you're trying to maximize. So if you're trying to maximize newborn health, um, and maternal well-being, like health well-being, you want to have, you know, a year of paid leave. But if you're trying to maximize um, income and job retention and uh, earnings over time and um, ensuring that you're not facilitating gender-based discrimination in the workplace, unless you're creating a policy that's gender equal and that people of both genders are using um, to care for a new child, a year is probably going to exacerbate the inequalities that exist rather than shrink them. And that's an unfortunate um, statement about our culture and the value that we put on unpaid care or caregiving, family caregiving and parenting, but it's likely to be true. I think, um, you know, the amount of time that you might want to care for a new child, um, you know, under the Family Act, if both, if you're in a two-parent family, and each parent takes the time, the child can have six months at home, essentially, or close to six months at home. So, um, and sometimes that gets lost in the conversation too. So I think it's a really complicated question, but it's like, are you trying to maximize health and well-being? Health? Are you trying to maximize family well-being, which is obviously like tied up pretty heavily with income and wealth building over time? Are you trying to maximize or minimize um, healthcare expenses for older people? Are you trying to maximize like the possibility that a caregiver to an adult will go back into the workforce rather than drop out? Um, are you trying to maximize like for business to continue to operate efficiently? All of these things have different answers. And I think one of the, to me, the thing about the Family Act is that it, I think, sits at a pretty sweet intersection 
of um, trying to maximize, you know, create like a, you know, the utility function that maximizes each of those things, at least as far as the U.S. exists today and the culture that we have here. Thank you. Does anybody else want to jump in before I turn us towards audience questions? I just want to add that um, Vicky did some great points. I think that the 12 weeks, if we got 12 weeks, it would just it would be huge. It would, um, it would uh, as Biden says, it would be a BFD, right? It would be just big. And um, so even though we don't match up to what other countries are doing for the United States, it would be a leap forward. Uh, so I think people should, uh, 12 weeks would be high. Um, and for every, and, and here's the thing, this is what people don't, like there is a correlation between cost and who's utilizing it and, um, and length of time. So when I was looking at extending, I tried to do 12 weeks. I want to do 12 weeks in California. But the, the for uh, lower income folks, it's relatively cheap, right? Just because their salaries are so low. But the high utilization rate of higher income folks adding on weeks was really expensive. I'm not saying that's a reason to not do it. It's just um, you got to be cognizant of that, the, the, the correlation between the extending weeks and cost because um, the people that are more likely to use it, and that's why equity is such a big deal, are the higher income folks. That's going to drive your cost. So, um, and it's a social, it's a, it's a social insurance program. So, um, how you do it matters, but twelve weeks would still be groundbreaking. Thank you, Congressman. Yes, I want to be very clear that I agree. Twelve weeks would be groundbreaking, and in my own research. I look at these sort of unintended consequences of leaves that are maybe too long for gender equality, right? So I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to these issues and would think 12 weeks is an amazing advancement uh, for the United States for sure. So there was an audience question here that actually dovetails into the last question I wanted to ask you all, but didn't. My question was lots of academics in the audience, students, senior scholars, what can those of us working in academia do to be most useful in your efforts to advance paid leave. But an audience member also wants to know what can the average person do to promote the establishment of sufficient paid leave? So any ideas for what we should be doing, please tell us. I'll jump in on the academic front. Um, and I know Brentia will have a lot to say on the, on the grassroots front. Um, and it's a great question because tomorrow, um, and heads up to you, Congressman, because you'll be getting this letter. Um, there is a letter coming from 300, close to 300 business and management school professors across the country who have come together to urge Congress and the president to pass a comprehensive national paid leave as part of economic recovery. So one way that um, academics can get involved is simply to lend their voices as experts in this space um, on their own or with colleagues. Um, and, and sometimes having unexpected messengers gets attention, um, both from policymakers and from the media in a way that, um, raises the profile, ups the stakes and creates the salience that Francia was talking about. I think in terms of research questions, um, there are great organizations that are out there that have helped, um, like the Washington Center for Equitable Growth that have really tried to, um, foster research in this area. Same with Urban Institute and Brookings and others. But I think that the personal medical leave component to this um, and the family caregiving components have really been understudied. Um, And there's a lot more to tease out about, um, in particular, both the the benefits to caregivers and care recipients of access to paid leave, 
um, the, the return to work uh, potential that paid leave provides. So retention on the employer side, um, the cost savings to healthcare systems, other public programs, um, impact on earnings. All of those are really understudied and feel like they would be a very important contribution to a conversation that is likely to focus on costs and, and benefits. And then there's tons of ways that the public can get engaged. And I'll turn it over to Brencia for that. We have about 500,000 members all over the country um, that are part of this paid leave movement. And so I would say, please definitely go to our website and sign up because we have, we, you know, we work closely with Vicki and the congressman um, on a lot of our efforts that will be coming up in these next few weeks that are going to be crucial to making sure that we try to win the best paid leave policies, support the administration and their commitment to winning us 12 weeks of paid leave policy, and also support um, Congress members like Congressman Gomez, who are uh, very vocal and out front on the issue in Congress. But we have to make sure that all of Congress hears from us about the fact that we need paid leave and that we are going to, that it's a priority for us. So if you sign up, uh, we have actions that will be coming up. And then also we, um, you know, Vicki has done an amazing job on the business professor front. And we, we have a um, business sign on letter that has been circulating uh, that if you all are connected to like in your various networks, um, any companies that you know um, are interested in this issue as a public policy issue. So we've had some pretty big brands um, that Vicki mentioned, Patagonia, um, Eventbrite, uh, and like Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams production company recently signed on that are saying, hey, we are, you know, some of the barriers that we faced has been the talking points that the business community does not, uh, this isn't good for business, but we have seen otherwise and tons of research and our work. And so um, this is another part of our effort. So if I, I can drop that link as well, I have to find it. But if you know, if you have any people in your network that are connected to businesses or business leaders and places that you are working, um, we're, we have a hundred plus businesses that have signed on that's, that are, that are saying to, um, to Congress and the administration, hey, we care about paid leave as public policy to debunk the, the, the um, myth that it's not good for business. So those are a couple of ways we are always um, advocating, sending letters and emails and calls to Congress members. Um, and so if you sign up on our website, you can, um, you'll get emails about, hey, we're about to go into action and this is how you can get involved. Oh, and one other thing too, which is so much of the challenge we've had around paid leave is that people think that their family caregiving issues and their personal health issues are theirs alone to solve. So that this is a very individual pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. One of the things people can do um, is really just create the sense that your care challenge is the same as your neighbor's might not be the same as your neighbor's care challenge, but you each have care challenges. So on my block, you know, my next door neighbors who are in the house right behind me, like, she had breast cancer and he's a self-employed person. They didn't have paid leave for him to care for her. They lost income. The people on this side of me have two little girls and the mom didn't have paid maternity leave. People across the street have, you know, our aging people whose children can't come and take care of them. So everybody's got something. Um, every business uh, also has employees that they want to take care of. Um, too often these issues are seen as individual issues that people don't talk about. 
and a business versus a worker issue where, you know, the letter that Brency was talking about and other business engagement efforts have really shown that there are common, there's common interest among both businesses, especially small businesses and their workers and people being able to have the time that they need to care. And a system like the Family Act would create an affordable, sustainable way um, for, for everybody to have access to the leave that they need and for employees to be taken care of, no matter what size business they're in. And I think the um, demonstrating it really to um, states, so, so anything you can do to highlight state programs, what it does to the state budgets, this is thinking as a legislator, because you're more likely to be able to um, help pass some of these um, state programs uh, quicker. And once it's in place, people start thinking about it differently. I think I, if I can remember correctly, I got a few Republican uh, votes in it um, when they thought it, when it was structured a certain one the fact that it was going to help more lower income folks that live in say central California, that's where most of our Republicans exist anyway. So figuring out how that impacts those districts, you're going to, you're going to have, um, you might have a, a big impact and you can use that to sell the, the program. That's what I, I was thinking. It's like, well, what information would I need? And it's like, well, if I'm a state legislature, state legislator is really kind of what impact it has on the state budgets, right? And that is key. Um, and then using also um, having enough data in order to swat down any um, business excuse that emerges. In politics, I always said that um, policy is the excuse, but politics is the reason why people vote a certain way in the in the House or in the Senate or in the um, or in state legislators uh, legislature. I hate to put it that way. And then if you're able to knock down any of their policy excuses. All they have is politics, and then it's harder to defend if they're against it. And oftentimes they come, come around towards it. That would be my advice. Vicky's point was so good, and so I'm dropping another link. <laughs> but the, the individual aspect in our stories are just so powerful. So I'm dropping a link that, you know, we are always uh, amplifying uh, the voices of our advocates and the people that are saying, hey, this is this is what I'm doing and I'm caregiving and this is why paid leave is important to me. So I am also dropping that link in there to, to please share your stories. And I'll just plus up on one thing the congressman said, which is to lift up the state programs that do exist. And that's both um, on the story front, telling t- talking about the difference that they've made. But for the researchers and the academics on this call, there are a number of new programs. There are also, there's, there are different policies, uh, tweaks between different states and really teasing out um, how those policies are working, the differences that they've made, kind of pre and post passage. So for example, um, Massachusetts's law just went into effect this year. Um, their family, they, the, the personal medical leave and new child leave is in effect. The family caregiving leave um, comes online in July. It'll be a great time to study kind of pre and post the um, aspects of the policy that mattered the most or how the policy affected. Connecticut comes online next year. Oregon comes online in 2023. Colorado will come online in 2024. Um, Each of these policies is going to be transformative for those states. They're all designed slightly differently in terms of the wage replacement, the maximum benefits and duration. Um, There's and of course, you know, California's longstanding program, New Jersey just made a bunch of changes to their program. So there's some interesting things to study there. Um, and Washington State is now in its second year, its first year, and same with DC. 
first year was like in the middle of a pandemic. So there's a lot um, of ripe uh, research to do at the state level to really prove the value of the policy and also examine the difference that different components make with respect to things like chosen family, which I know was one of the questions that came up with respect to wage replacement, with respect to eligibility rules, um, tons of, of ground. And, um, you know, we saw at the beginning of the pandemic that California and Rhode Island were able to respond to people's needs, need for, for income more quickly um, than the federal government did. And um, hopefully there'll be some research showing the difference that that made um, in terms of families having the support that they needed during that time in terms of retention and income and things like that. And that, that's exactly it. Because and, and the way these states operate, or elect, elected officials in states, they're always looking at other states and what they're doing to try to top it or to take an idea and implement it in their own particular state. Um, and that's just, it's just natural, right? That's elected officials want, want wins, uh, want to do something that changes people's lives. And, and paid family leave is, is, is part of that. But studying it is, is crucial. And it's not to ding anybody. It's just to make these programs better because people's buy-in relies on the fact are, are people's lives going to be impacted for, a, you know, in a positive way, right? On the ground, not on paper, but on the ground. And that's why it's crucial for um, that, that, that work to um, take place. And if things aren't working, you've got to change it. That's just, that's just it. Um, so I, that's where I would push as well to focus a lot of your research is the, those states. And these Corporations are known to I mean, steal a thing that they do. They're known to go to different states to pass laws, to create a patchwork. And then they use that as the justification why you need to do something at the federal level or, uh, on a particular issue. You can do that same thing when it comes to paid family leave. Pass it state by state, create a, a, a patchwork where you have a people calling out right for a, a national program. So I would, my argument would be every single state that implements a program creates more pressure for the federal government to step in and to pass something. I want to thank all three of you so much for your response to that question and for incorporating answers to questions that I didn't even get to ask you that were brought up in the chat because unfortunately we've run out of time only having an hour together today. Um, so I just really want to thank the centers for organizing this wonderful panel to our three panelists for taking time out of your very, very busy days to come talk to us about paid leave. Um, I think we all learned a lot today and really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future, that's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.